you turn with me to 1 John chapter 3 and then to the book of Jude in connection with the remaining articles of the Canons of Dort in the positive sections as we've been studying them we come to the last four articles of the final the fifth head of doctrine about the perseverance of the saints and tonight we see that in the assurance of this perseverance is not an inducement to carelessness but an incentive to godliness First John 3, I'd like to read the first nine verses. First John 3, verse 1, God's holy word. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And then if you turn to the letter the epistle of Jude. I'd like to actually not only read the last verses, 20 through 25, but I'd like to read verses 3 and 4. Jude comes right before Revelation. And verses 3 and 4 say, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then skipping to the end of the letter, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. If you turn from the scripture reading to our confession, we're on page 280 and 281. Forms and Prayers book, page 280. In this fifth head of doctrine on the perseverance of the saints. (coughs) 
reading Article 12, this assurance of perseverance, however, so far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured, is rather the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness and cross-bearing and in confessing the truth, and of well-founded joy in God. Reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive to a serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works, as is evident from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. Article 13, neither does the renewed confidence of perseverance produce immorality or lack of concern for godliness in those put back on their feet after a fall. But it produces a much greater concern to observe carefully the ways of the Lord, which he prepared in advance. They observe these ways in order that by walking in them, they may maintain the assurance of their perseverance, lest by their abuse of his fatherly goodness, the face of the gracious God, for the godly looking upon his face is sweeter than life, but its withdrawal is more bitter than death, turn away from them again with a result that they fall into greater anguish of spirit. Article 14, And just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the proclamation of the gospel, so he preserves, continues, and completes his work by the hearing and reading of the gospel, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and also by the use of the sacraments. And finally, Article 15, This teaching about the perseverance of true believers and saints and about their assurance of it, a teaching which God has very richly revealed in his word for the glory of his name and for the comfort of the godly and which he impresses on the hearts of believers, is something which the flesh does not understand. Satan hates, the world ridicules, the ignorant and the hypocrites abuse, and the spirits of air attack. The Bride of Christ, on the other hand, has always loved this teaching very tenderly and defended it steadfastly as a priceless treasure. And God, against whom no plan can avail and no strength can prevail, will ensure that she will continue to do this. To this God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Should we ask the Lord for his gracious blessing upon us tonight? Our Father in heaven, we bow once more in this Lord's day to ask you for your blessing from above. To heaven we pray, and from heaven you send and you save us. Father in heaven, look down with mercy. Be pleased to see your children gathered around your word. Send to us your Holy Spirit. Encourage us by your truth. And grant us, Lord, your help here tonight, so you'll be glorified now, and we pray. In this week to come, as you write your word upon us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, saints of God, as we've been seeing, the perseverance of the saints is the, the crown or the capstone on all the, the previous doctrines or truths that we've been looking at, right? We've noted that out of the fountainhead of election flow wonderful truths, Uh, That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes to atone for the sins of his sheep, die for the church, that the Spirit comes with sovereign grace to give new life to dead hearts and to call the elect to God. And then all of that crowned by this truth that those who've been 
called, the ones Jesus died for, the ones the Father chose, that these given faith will be preserved in that faith to the end, the perseverance of the saints. And last time we looked at the assurance of perseverance, that we can know, that we can be certain that we're not just among the elect, but we can be certain that God will keep us to the end, that we by faith can know that based on the promises of Scripture and the Spirit testifying by those promises in our heart. And that's confirmed by a life of obedience to the Lord. But now the question tonight, is it good to have this assurance of perseverance? Is it good to be, to be certain and assured that, that the Lord's going to keep me and cause me to persevere all the way to heaven? Let's look tonight at assurance as, first of all, the root of holy living, and then secondly, assurance as the incentive to stay close to the Lord, and then thirdly, assurance as the treasure belonging to Christ's bride. Well, critics of the doctrine of perseverance of the saints claim that it will have bad consequences. They think it will make us proud, make us careless, make us presumptuous, that if we believe that God's going to keep me to the end, then I might just live any old way I please because it's all locked in and God's stuck with me anyway. But Article 13 has it exactly right. It says not only is that that it's false, that assurance makes believer proud and carnally self-assured, but that actually assurance of perseverance does the complete opposite of that. It doesn't minister to pride. I can do it myself. I'm going to make it anyway. But Godly assurance bears all the fruit that pleases God. Now, humanly speaking, the argument of the critics might make sense, right? That if you, you know you're going to be saved, well, then you just live like the devil. You, you know you're going to heaven, so you'll just indulge the, the pleasures of the flesh because it's all locked in. But that doesn't happen because that's not what salvation is. Salvation is not just a ticket to heaven. It's it's a new life. It's a new heart. It's, it's a new heart that loves to please God. Now, 1 John chapter 3, first of all, tells us in verses 1 and 2 of the glorious assurance that is ours. Behold what manner of love the Father's lavished on us, bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know, we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And on the heels of that grand assurance, what's going to be the fruit? Is it going to be rotten? Not at all. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Simon Kistemacher in his commentary says this is not a wish, that everyone who has this hope, may he purify himself. And he says it's not a mere possibility. Everyone who has this hope might purify himself. And he says it's not a command. Everyone who has this hope ought to purify himself, but it's a fact. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. That's the fruit of the certainty that we are God's children and we shall be like him when he is revealed. So certainty of our perseverance is not harmful, but it's a great blessing. Those who cultivate that hope, those who live in that hope, I'm going to see the Lord. Jesus Christ is going to descend. I'm going to see my God and at that moment be transformed gloriously into the likeness of my God without any sin, to live with him forever. Everyone who holds that hope, cherishes that hope, has that hope, purifies himself. He puts away sin. 
He says, no, I don't want that because I'm looking forward to seeing my Savior. No, I don't want to go that way. I want to walk with the God I love and with whom I'm going to live forever. Now, hypocrites and the ignorant twist Scripture and they misuse the grace of God. We read that in Jude, verse 4, men who, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who are, are men who either don't know the truth or, or hypocrites who, whose hearts are hard and abuse the truth. But if we listen to God's word, we see that you can't have too much assurance. It's not ever a bad thing. You, you can never come to a point where, you know, you're getting a little too certain about your future. You need a, a little bit of fear, a little bit of doubt to keep you on the straight and narrow. That's not biblical theology. The sure fruit of certain assurance is purity. The spirit who's been given to us is a sanctifying spirit. He continues to cleanse us. Assurance ministers to all the fruit that God loves. Article 12 lists a bunch of it, doesn't it? First of all, the true root of humility. If we understand the perseverance of the saints, it doesn't make us proud. It makes us humble. But for the grace of God, I would depart the Lord. It's all of him. It gives us childlike respect or reverence. We're thankful to God. It gives us genuinely, genuine godliness. You know, it's works righteousness that makes hypocrites of people. They try to earn their way. They don't serve God out of love. But, but those who know they're loved, they enjoy genuine godliness. Canons say that this assurance produces endurance in every conflict. If we didn't have confidence we're going to make it to the end, then, then we would give up. We face insurmountable enemies. But if we know that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, then we become overcomers, more than conquerors, through who loved us. Because God's not going to abandon us. It produces fervent prayers. Because we, we know our dependence upon the Lord who keeps us. And we know we have a personal God who hears our cries. It produces steadfastness and cross-bearing. Because we know there's a goal. Suffering is not forever. It produces steadfastness and confessing the truth. Remember what the apostle, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is, wrote in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This glorious certainty that heavens is yours, that the gates are open wide, should lead you to a full assurance that you hold on to. Finally, Canons mentions as the fruit of this assurance a, a well-founded joy. I remember First uh, Peter that talks about we're being kept by the power of God for that last day. And then he speaks of you who have a Christ you love even though you haven't seen him. And though you do not see him, yet you believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's the fruit of the assurance of perseverance. It's joy. It's joy. It's delight. I'm going to see my Savior. I love him. So, 
The fruit that pleases God flows out of a heart that's satisfied in the Lord and certain that God is our God to the end. Then we, well, then we sing songs of thanksgiving. Reflecting on this benefit, the canon says, reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive to a serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works. You, you read Romans 8 and you listen to the Apostle Paul who, who says, I am persuaded, I am convinced that nothing will separate us from God's love. It's exuberant praise. You, you hear David in Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. It doesn't produce godlessness. That's the point. Critics say that if you're too sure, then you're just going to live in a careless way and walk in sin. Not the case. The saints of the Lord have proven that assurance produces godliness. Dr. Godfrey in his commentary on the canons points out, as the canons say here at the end of Article 12, that, that even the example of saints, saints throughout the ages, show that, that this doctrine doesn't produce carelessness. Dr. Godfrey writes, the point is underscored in the history of the Reformed people at the time of Dort and afterward. In the Netherlands, the most committed Calvinists were called precisionists. In England, they were called Puritans. Such people were clearly not secure in their sins or indifferent to holiness. They were known for the desire to live by every word of the Scriptures. So assurance is the root. Not the rot, but the root of good fruit. Notice, secondly tonight, the incentive to stay close to God is found with assurance. Article 13 goes on to deal with more of the same, but now it's talking about those who, who had a deep fall. Remember earlier in the canons that we, we looked at, at, at the fact that those who are Christ could nevertheless fall deeply into sin, and the canons referenced David, King David, and Peter, who denied Jesus as two examples of falling into deep sin. And now Article 13 says, well, what about, what about those who've fallen deeply and been restored? Does it make them careless? Careless Christians, complacent believers? And the answer is no. No, look at David, look at Peter. Did Peter become complacent? No, he became zealous for the cause of Christ. He preached the gospel. He wrote, he wrote 1 Peter to warn Christians about falling and stumbling. Article 13 makes the wonderful point that, that those who have once lost the the smile of God's face, that they didn't feel the joy and blessing of living under God's smile. Those who've lost it and then been restored to it, they're not careless now. They think, ah, it's no big deal. They say, I never want to lose that again. I want to live under God's shining face. Psalm 32, in addition to Psalm 51, which is marked out as being the psalm David composed after his fall, but Psalm 32 seems to be a later reflection on the same event when it talks about David when, his, when he kept silent, his bones grew old and all that, and he, he didn't repent for a time. But in Psalm 32, uh, David writes, Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else it will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Does that sound like a man who's 
counting it no big deal to depart the Lord again when he says many sorrows to the wicked, but joy in the Lord. No, it's a man who's saying, I, I don't want to lose. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I don't want to lose the smile of your face. And therefore, assurance is no inducement to carelessness, but it, it leads us to press on and take seriously what Jude says when Jude says in verse 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Child of God says, I don't, I don't want to live anywhere but beneath the sunshine of God's face. I, I, want, to, I want to be there to, to feel the embrace of that love of God. I don't want to depart God. Well, how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Jude mentions praying in the Spirit, but elsewhere in Scripture it mentions the, the means of grace that God has given to us, His Word, means of the Gospel. It's remarkable that the Apostle Paul, when he counsels the Ephesian elders, when he's going to depart them and probably never see them again, he urges them to, to give themselves and the flock to the Word. And, and when Paul counsels Timothy in 2 Timothy and and he doesn't know if he'll see Timothy. He's coming to the end of his life. He tells Timothy to preach the word. It's the word by which God continues the work he began in us. It's the word by which God completes the work he's begun in us. So keep yourselves in love of God. God, who's building us up, says, keep yourselves. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And so we as believers have this responsibility before God. Not to be idle or complacent, but to labor at it. When it comes to God's word, it's not an IV injection which we sit passively by while God floods into our bloodstream, his word. But we are to take up that word, to study that word, to receive that word. We're to hear the word, read the word, meditate on the word, appropriate the word, receive the word. The responsibility. Article 14 says, and just as it pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the proclamation of the gospel, so he preserves that work, he continues that work, he completes his work by the hearing and reading of the gospel, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and also by the use of the sacraments. It's good to be together tonight, to be around God's word. Where else can we expect to be strengthened in the faith, but as we sit under the word of God. But not only to, to hear the word and read it in church, but, but to read that word at home as well. Remember Psalm 1, the blessed man, that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. That word is in him, that, that word is before him, that, that word is pondered by him, it's meditated upon, he muses over it, he mumbles it to himself, he studies it, he pays attention to it, he remembers it. The book of the word sitting on a shelf is not a good luck charm that automatically brings blessing. It's not an air freshener that just sort of cleanses the air around us. Its power is, is in hearing of our Christ, meeting our Lord in his pages. So it's a good time, appropriate place for each of us tonight to ask ourselves, am I a student of the word? Does the word of God dwell in me richly? 
Do I have habits in my life of reading that word? Not just to flip open the book and read a bit and shut it, but to meditate on it day and night. To pray for grace, to understand what's said, to savor its sweetness, to be convicted. To be comforted by it. It's not just adults, but that's for children too and for young people. Developing habits early in life of relying on the word, loving that word. We could think in terms of the preaching of the word too. How might I get more out of it? Do I come prepared? Maybe looking at the bulletin that comes earlier in the week on email and looking at the passage, praying for grace to receive it, developing questions about it, asking that the good shepherd would lead us in green pastures of his word. And there are various dimensions to that word, aren't there? And canons mention that there are exhortations and there are threatenings and there are promises, and we need all of it, right? The Apostle Paul says, I haven't shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God, we need all of it. We need all of the word. We need the word in all of its variety. All scripture is God-breathed, Paul told Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. We need the exhortations to, to stir us up, to direct us in the path. We need the threatenings. Yes, we need those. That's part of the way God keeps us safe, is by warning us that if you depart me, you'll face the covenant curse. Those warnings are part of the way of keeping. Parents that warn their children not to play in the street will get run over, not because they hope their children will play in the street and get run over, but precisely the opposite, so that they don't get run over. And God gives us warnings. We need the warnings. And there's promises. We need the comfort of the promises. God will keep his word. And then the canons mentions the sacraments. That God has given to us a couple of Things that meet not our ears as the word proclaimed us, but that meet our eyes and our hands and our noses and our mouths that, that arrest our senses and confirm to us the reality of the promises of the gospel. And we're to make something of those, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And it's not Christian maturity to say, well, you know, those things don't really matter. You know, I'm, I'm sort of above that. I don't need those crutches. No, God says you do need those crutches. That's why I gave them to you. Because, because you have doubts, and I want you to be more certain, more assured. I want you to see and taste and touch and believe that as tangible as the bread and wine, as tangible as the water, so tangible, so real, is my forgiveness and my nourishment of your soul. And just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the proclamation of the gospel, so he's pleased to continue it by these means. And that's comforting because sometimes we feel like not much is happening. We don't see any fireworks. It all seems rather usual. I'm not sure it's actually doing anything to me. No, you can rest your heart that it pleases God to use these tools, and he will use them. As we humbly call upon him, as we faithfully make use of them, as we bow beneath his word, God will work in us. And then finally tonight, 
We see at the perseverance, the assurance of perseverance is not just the root of holy living and the incentive to stay close to the Lord, but it's, it's the treasured truth of Christ's bride. Article 15 brings the canons in terms of the positive sections to a close. And this article, this last one, speaks to the fact that although Satan hates this truth, the bride of Jesus loves the truth of the perseverance of the saints. I think you could almost compare the perseverance of the saints to to, uh, an engagement ring. We have that custom in our culture, don't we, that when a guy asks a gal to marry him, then he puts a ring on her finger. And if she loves him, if she wants to marry him, if if that's appealing to her to spend the rest of her life with him, then she generally is not embarrassed by the ring, but but she looks upon it with delight, and she, she likes to show it to those who ask. She, she delights in what it points to. She's going to be Mrs. So-and-so. Well, the church is like that in, in holding the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This is the promise of Jesus. He's going to keep me. He's going to bring me to himself. He's going to come for me. He's going to come for us as people. The Lord Jesus says, I'm going to bring you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm going to take you as my wife forever. Now, this truth is assaulted, we confess, by the enemies of Christ. And so we were to have a defensive posture. No woman leaves her jewelry sitting on the dashboard in an unlocked car because there's thieves. Satan is a thief. Satan hates this doctrine, we confess. The world ridicules it. The ignorant hypocrites abuse it. The spirits of air attack it. Why does Satan hate this truth so much? Because this is the the incentive of godliness. Because this is the joy of God's people. Because this is the glory of God among his saints. That they sing with confidence, with delight, that we are the Lord's forever. And they go out all week to serve the Lord in that gladness. And so Satan hates it. It directs all praise to God. And Satan hates it. He wants to break us away from the Lord. He alleges that our Christ is unfaithful to us. That our Christ doesn't care about us. And he wants to make us unfaithful to Jesus. Tries to convince us that future joys are not worth waiting for. Give in to sin. But as we look at the Reformation era where these truths were confessed, people were willing to part with their earthly life, their temporal life, their bodies. Because they had the confidence that they were the Lord's. See that in marriage, don't you, where a wife is convinced of her husband's love, and she is secure, and she in many ways is defended, isn't she, from, from the seductions of other men. But it's a woman whose husband is not there for her, doesn't talk to her. There's no emotional bond that she, she might become enticed by the attention of another man who seems to care for her. The perseverance of the saints is Christ's love proclaimed to us. It's his assurance. Keeps us strong and therefore Satan hates it. And false teachers despise it. And Jude says wicked men have crept in who, who misuse it. But this truth is treasured by the bride of Jesus. The bride of Christ, on the other hand, has always loved this teaching very tenderly and defended it steadfastly as a priceless treasure. That's the bride of Jesus. Be gone, Satan, with your lies. We love this truth. Jude says, I 
Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Fight for that faith. Stand. Philippians 1, you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Church of Christ is called to keep this truth, prize this truth, defend this truth. This is why the canons were written, right? To defend the truth. Canons were written precisely to preserve this truth for the church so the Arminians would not spread the airs and overcome God's people. Our study of the canons these past weeks has been an attempt, isn't it, to defend the truth, to be firm in the truth. We want to leave an inheritance to the children of the church. But above all, this truth is protected by God. And God, against whom no plan can avail and no strength can prevail, will ensure that the church will continue to believe this. To this God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be honor and glory forever. Amen. You can take out an insurance policy on a ring, but God is the protector of this truth. And so he has. Here we are tonight, right? 1,900, 2,000 years later than... Then these books of the Bible are written, and still we believe these things. The Word has been inscripturated. The Word has been preserved. The Word has been preached. The Word has been taught. The Lord has raised up theologians to lead his church in defending the truth. And here tonight, we with the early Christians believe that God is our keeper. He will bring us to the end. And so we join voices with the church throughout the ages. And as last verses of Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. All true theology leads to doxology, doesn't it? Because in all true theology, God gets the praise. And certainly that's the case in the perseverance of the saints, the God who chose us, the God who sent his son to die for us, and God who called us to himself, and God who keeps us for himself, will be magnified forever on that great day. What a day that will be. To him who is able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Can you picture the joy of your Lord Jesus Christ on that day? To present to his glorious Father the work of his redeeming and keeping love. Isaiah 53, that he'll see the travail of his soul and he will be satisfied. He'll be satisfied. As he presents to the Father now the redeemed, purchased, called, kept and now glorified to live in a new heavens and a new earth with God forever, to sing God's praise and to glorify him. This is the joy of our Lord Jesus Christ. This will be the smile on his face. This will be the smile on the Father's face to see his Son has done it, that he's brought us all to glory. And this will be our joy throughout all the ages as we sing praise to the one who's done it all, as we sing salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a great keeper. How good you have been to us, how faithful. Oh Lord, how 
glorious is your love. That before we were made, you loved us. That seeing our rebellion and wickedness, you loved us. That you sent your beloved. That you've given us your spirit. That you keep us day by day for the glory above. We give praise to you, our God. You, our Savior, who alone is wise. To you belongs the glory, the majesty, the dominion and power. We give praise to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life the shepherd of his sheep to the end of the ages. We give praise to the Holy Spirit who powerfully summons sinners to come alive from the dead and brings them into your fellowship. We give praise to our triune God who works as the one true God and the perfect triunity of Father, Son, and Spirit, not countering each other, but in cooperation one with another, that you might have all the praise and glory in the hearts of your people forever. O God, defend the truth against the evil one. Make us defenders of the truth who are glad to believe it and to proclaim it and to study it and to teach it to the next generation. And may your saints continue to find great confidence that you will never fail them or leave them. And may their voices be raised to praise you because, Lord, you have done it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.